Republic. Written and narrated by Christopher Vale. Theme song Lionheart by John Wright. Book available at ChristopherVale.net and Amazon.com. Chapter 1. A Forest Standing in Water The ship rocked gently on the ocean waves. Captain John Smith whispered a prayer thanking God that the ship had survived the storm. At least, he had survived. He could not be certain that the entirety of the passengers and crew had also survived, as he was confined to the brig below deck, with large iron bars preventing him from going above. The bucket he used to relieve himself had fallen over during the storm, and the contents were spread all over his cell. Confined there for thirteen weeks, an ordinary man might have gone crazy. But Captain Smith was no ordinary man. Nor was he a ship's captain. No, John Smith had earned the rank of captain fighting on land, when his prowess and stratagem had helped turn the tides against the Muslim invasion of Europe. An English commoner Smith had left London when he was just 15 years old, after being cheated out of his small inheritance. Like a real-life Don Quixote, Smith consumed romantic tales of knights and desperately wanted to don armor and set off on an exciting quest. Thus, always an adventure seeker, Smith went to war. It was the late 1500s, however, and chivalrous acts such as armored knights jousting on horseback for the entertainment of adoring maids, was a thing of the past. Still, a soldier of fortune could make a good living, if he survived, and Smith went to help the Protestant Dutch fight the Catholic Spanish. The young man proved to be a very astute warrior and tactician, but, as a devout follower of Jesus Christ, he soon lamented seeing so many Christians slaughter one another, and journeyed west to defend Christendom from the onslaught of Muslim invaders. The Turkish armies of Sultan Mohammed III were pushing through Hungary in an attempt to conquer all of Europe and finally bring the continent under Islamic rule. The Turks already controlled Budapest and had occupied the impressive Alba Regala stronghold for 60 years. Just before Smith arrived, the Muslims conquered the city of Kniza and were steadily moving forward against the Christians. When Smith joined the fight, the unified Christian armies of Germany, France, Styria, and Hungary were laying siege to the Hungarian town of Olympa with some 2,000 men. Little did the Turks know what the single reinforcement of John Smith would do to improve the Christian armies. 
Smith's earliest contribution to the wars against the Islamic conquest of Christendom was the introduction of a system of signals using torchlight. With these torch signals, the Christian soldiers could communicate with their fellows besieged by the Turks within the city of Olympah. Using these signals, the Christians were able to coordinate to break the siege. Furthermore, the successful relief of the city was made possible because of another innovation of Smith's. Using lines of gunpowder and torches, he was able to give the illusion of a great army of French musketeers marching on the Turks in the darkness. The Turkish forces turned and charged what they believed to be an attacking army, and while they were busy assaulting the Phantom Musketeers, thousands of Christian troops moved into the city. After realizing they had been duped, but also realizing the force within the city was too substantial to overtake, the Turks abandoned Olympah and returned to Kniza. For his ingenious deception of the enemy, Smith was awarded the rank of captain. The Muslims were not deterred, however, and began sending out fresh attacks against Europe. To counter these new invasions, the Christians organized three armies. The first would defend Low Hungary, the second would retake the city of Kniza, and the third would liberate Transylvania. In the year 1601, Smith's regiment, under the command of Earl Meldridge, joined Duke Mercury and an army of 30,000 to besiege the Muslim stronghold at Alba Regalis. While laying siege, Smith invented a type of missile that could be fired over the walls into the fortress. The Christian soldiers shot them into the city at midnight, while another Christian force swung around behind the city and captured some Turkish guns. The Christians turned the guns on the stronghold and shredded the Muslims inside. The Turks retreated and the Christians took possession of Abu Regalis for the first time in 60 years. The Christians then pushed towards Transylvania, but a narrow pass out of Hungary was guarded by an impressive fortress in the town of Regal. The Christians laid siege to the mountain fortress, and after about a month of digging trenches and setting up cannons, but not actually attacking, the besieged Turks had grown rather bored. The Turkish Bashaw, who commanded the city, issued a challenge to the Christians. It seems he had a mind to impress the ladies with feats of chivalry and challenged any captain of a company in the Christian army to combat with him for his head. The 23-year-old Captain John Smith, who had practiced with the lance for years, hoping one day to meet some foe in a knightly manner, eagerly accepted the Bashaw's challenge. Beautiful ladies and knightly men crowded the ramparts to watch the spectacle as the gates of the city opened to allow the Bashaw to ride out of the city upon an impressive mount. On his shoulders were fixed a pair of great wings compacted of eagle's feathers within a ridge of silver richly garnished with gold and precious stones. He was attended by three squires. The first carried the Bashaw's lance and the other two flanked his steed. Smith galloped up to meet the shining knight like a rough rider while trumpeters announced his coming. His only attendant, a single page, carried his lance. Smith gave the Bashaw a flourishing salute, accepted the lance from his page, and waited for the signal to begin. Once the signal was given, he urged his steed into a thunderous charge and thrust his lance into the Bashaw's face, knocking him from his horse and killing him instantly. Per the terms of the challenge, Smith dismounted, drew his sword, and chopped the Bashaw's head from his neck. 
Smith remounted his horse and galloped off to present the severed head to his commanding officer, General Moises, while the Bashal's men carried the headless body back into the fortress. All of this happened so quickly that the Turks watching from the wall were in a state of shock. Once the surprise wore off, the Bashal's friend, Gruolgo, turned red with rage and before he had an opportunity to think better of it, immediately issued a challenge to Smith to regain the Bashal's head. Smith happily accepted the challenge, and the following morning, the Turk galloped out of the safety of the city walls with a flourish of trumpets and reined in his steed waiting for the signal to begin. Once the trumpets blared, the two men charged one another, and their lances each splintered upon the other's armor, but neither man fell from his horse. Both men then drew their pistols and at the signal fired. Smith was struck upon his armored breastplate, startling him, but not injuring him. He returned fire, striking his rival in the arm and causing the Turk to lose control of his horse. Grualgo was flung from his saddle, and Smith promptly dismounted, drew his sword, and took possession of the Turk's head. Smith also decided to keep Grualgo's horse and armor, but allowed the Turks to return to the city with the man's body and fine clothes. Emboldened by his two victories, Smith decided to issue a challenge of his own. Any Turk, brave enough, could come and try to take Smith's head. Bonnie Mulgro, a giant of a man, rode out of the city, sneering at the small Christian soldier mounted before him. This time, the duelers would begin with pistols instead of lances. At the signal, both men fired their pistols, but both balls bounced harmlessly off of armor. The Turk, being the one challenged, was allowed to choose the next weapon and decided on battle axes. Smith and Mulgro retrieved their axes and galloped toward each other, a battle cry echoing from each man's lips. The axes met with a clang, but Mulgro's superior strength forced Smith's axe from his hand. The axe fell to the ground with a thud, and Smith nearly fell with it, but was somehow able to remain in the saddle. A great cheer from the Turks drifted down to the men's ears. Mulgro smiled as he turned his horse to face a now disarmed Smith. The giant Turk galloped toward Smith while swinging his heavy axe at the Christian's head. Smith was too quick for him, however, and managed to not only duck the blow, but to also draw his sword. As Mulgro rode past, Smith stabbed the Turk just below the armor protecting the small of his back. Mulgro screamed in agony as he fell to the ground with a thud. The cheers from the rampart ceased as Smith dismounted his horse, stood over Mulgro, and took his head. The Christian soldiers erupted in elation as Smith's men placed the heads of all three fallen Turks on lances and formed up in columns to present them to General Moises. The Lord Moises, overcome with excitement at his young captain's amazing triumph, embraced him. He then lavished Smith with expensive gifts of a horse, scimitar, and gold. Earl Meldridge, who commanded Smith's regiment, was also elated and promoted Smith to the rank of Sergeant Major. Excited and emboldened by Smith's victories, the Christian armies began firing on the stronghold, and once the guns had breached the wall, Moises ordered the attack. The Muslims tried to surrender, but Earl Meldridge refused to give them quarter. He had been born in the city and knew that the Muslims had killed his father and the other Christian soldiers when they took it, placing their heads upon stakes on the walls. 
the Earl avenged his father by adorning the walls with the Muslim heads in the same way the Turks had decorated them with Christian heads. Next, the Christians sought to liberate Wallachia from the Muslim occupiers. The Sultan had appointed a man named Jeremy over the city. He was a cruel tyrant and skinned alive any Christian soldiers he captured, hung their skins on poles, and sticked their heads and bodies beside them. The Christians were able to force Jeremy out of Wallachia, but then the Turkish army began to rape the surrounding countryside. Earl Meldrich and his regiment were sent against him. The Muslim army vastly outnumbered the Christians, and so Smith once again came up with an ingenious idea. They placed burning branches on the tips of lances and charged the enemy during the night. The sight was so terrifying that the Turkish horsemen fled in panic. Eventually, however, they stopped and faced their enemy. And when they did, the Christians faced an enormous Muslim force of 40,000 men. Meldrich and Smith led the charge, cutting through row after row of Turkish soldiers. The fighting was so fierce that it is said that Meldrich's shield was painted red with blood. Unfortunately, the Christians were too greatly outnumbered and were finally defeated. When the battle was over, 30,000 men lay dead and dying on the field, most missing a head or arm or leg. In his autobiography, Captain Smith mourned all of the dead earls, barons, colonels, captains, brave gentlemen, and soldiers who were slain in defense of Christ and his gospel. Smith himself laid among them, wounded, groaning, and presumed dead by his regiment. Smith was taken prisoner, placed in chains, and sold as a slave along with the other Christians, like beasts in a marketplace. In Exopolis, Smith was purchased by Bashaw Bagal, who sent the newly acquired slave as a gift to his mistress in Constantinople. Chained by his neck with 20 other men, Smith was marched the great distance from the Turkish capital and delivered to the Bashal's beautiful young mistress, Shiratsa. Shiratsa was extremely impressed with Bagal, having captured such a young and fierce-looking Christian warrior in battle. Shiratsa and Smith could both speak Italian, and soon the young woman was enamored with her handsome slave. She would often feign illness in order to stay home and talk to Smith and hear his exciting exploits. She once asked how her lover Bagal had captured him in battle and was quite disappointed to learn that the Bashaw had instead purchased Smith at a slave market. Shiratsa found compassion for her slave. Perhaps she was even in love with him and fearful that her mother would sell him she sent him away to the house of her brother, the Timur Bashaw of the distant city of Nalbritz. Shiratsa told Smith that he would be cared for there and that he should learn to speak the Turkish language and learn their customs. Once he had done that, he would be returned to her. Unfortunately, and unbeknownst to Shiratsa, Smith was treated terribly by her brother. As soon as he arrived, Smith was stripped naked his head and face shaved, and an iron collar bolted around his neck. Smith was forced to not only be the slave to the masters, but the lowest slave, the slave to the slaves, and lived on a diet of chopped up goat's entrails boiled in large cauldrons with couscous. The bowls were set on the ground, and the slaves ate it with their filthy hands. The Christians were the last to eat and received only what was left in the dirty bowls when the other slaves were finished. 
Smith was sent to the fields to work a few miles from the timer's house. The timer enjoyed torturing Smith and would ride out to the fields and beat his slave mercilessly. One day, Smith had enough. He yanked the timer down from his horse, took a small club, and beat the Turk to death. Smith quickly stole his master's clothes and hid the body under some straw. He leapt upon the timer's horse and galloped away into the vast desert. After fleeing for over two weeks, he finally came upon a Polish outpost. There, he was nursed back to health by the good lady Kalamata. He eventually made it back to his regiment and was handsomely rewarded with a full purse of gold and silver. Smith took his leave from the army and toured Europe for a while, before finally returning to London. He was there about a year and a half before he yearned again for adventure, and likely funds, and was hired by the London Company, who had a charter from King James to colonize the lands in North America. Thus, in 1606, Captain John Smith set sail to the New World by way of the West Indies. Many of the men feared Smith and his reputation as a fierce warrior. He also had a habit of disrespecting those he thought had little worth as men, other than their social rank. As for the other leaders aboard, many looked down on Smith as an upstart, and nowhere near equal to their station. They worried he was going to try and make himself king of the new colony, and threw him in the brig of the ship. The storm had forced the three ships into the Chesapeake Bay, in the land known as Virginia, named for Elizabeth, the Virgin Queen. Queen Elizabeth had granted the first charters to colonize North America. In 1584, she gave a charter to Sir Walter Raleigh, and the following year, a group of around 100 men established the very first English colony in what would eventually become the United States of America. However, after several hostile encounters with the native populations, the men decided to abandon the colony when the fleet of Sir Francis Drake appeared. More fertile lands were discovered further north, and a new colony set out under the command of John White, who had been appointed governor. This time, Sir Walter Raleigh decided to send families, believing they would cause less trouble with the native populations. In fact, White's own daughter and son-in-law were among them. White's granddaughter, whom her parents named Virginia Dare, was born on August 18, 1587, and became the first colonist child born in North America. The newly arrived colonists remained on Roanoke while White returned to England to retrieve more supplies. On his way back to Virginia in 1588, however, White's ship was sidetracked, plundering the Spanish. White finally returned to the colony on August 18, 1590, his granddaughter's third birthday, but discovered the colony deserted. All they found was the word Croatan carved into a tree. As the natives on Croatan were friendly, and the carving on the tree contained no cross or sign of distress, White decided the settlers were safe. He attempted to reach Croatan, but his anchor line snapped and the ship almost ran aground. Supplies being short, White decided to spend the winter in the West Indies before attempting to find the colonists on Croatan in the spring. White and his ships eventually sailed for England without ever going to Croatan, and the Roanoke colony disappeared. The London Company hoped their new expedition would finally establish a permanent English colony in Virginia. King James 
did not want to displace or harm the native population, whom he and most Englishmen thought of as the same race as their own, but whose skin had darkened in the sun. Instead, he wanted to civilize and Christianize them. They planned to do so gently, instead of using the brutal methods employed by the Spanish. The idea was to treat the natives well, not only in the Americas, but also in Africa, so that they would turn against the Spanish and join the universal Anglican Church, which would serve as a counterbalance to the advancement of Roman Catholicism. The English were not fools, however, and were certainly not naive enough to believe that they could convince enough men and women to join such a dangerous venture on the merits of evangelism alone. There would need to be some promise of profits to entice enough people to proceed. Moreover, the English crown needed private investors to finance these ventures, and the money would not flow nearly as freely if the sole purpose of the venture was enlarging the glorious gospel of Christ. Thus, the establishment of the colonies was promoted for commerce and prosperity as much as for Christianizing natives. The Americas not only offered valuable trade with the Indians, but could also produce goods that were greatly needed back in England. To that end, on December 19, 1606, three ships under the commands of Captain Newport, Captain Gosnold, and Captain Ratcliffe, and 143 men, including Captain John Smith, set sail for the New World. After a stop in the West Indies, they sailed north to Virginia. England had been largely deforested, and the great trees of North America looked to the English colonists like a forest standing in water. The ships made their way into the bay, and then up a river they named the James after the king. The land they discovered was beautiful, with easily navigable rivers, majestic mountains, and deep forests smelling of evergreen. They ate oysters that were found in the waters and often contained beautiful pearls. The Englishmen first stopped at a cape, where a few men went ashore, including George Percy and Captain Gabriel Archer. After the men had explored the area, they noticed natives creeping up on them from the grasses, crawling on their hands and knees, their bows held in their mouths. The Indians rained arrows down upon the Englishmen, striking Archer in both of his hands and wounding another sailor, before the Englishmen fired their muskets at the attackers, sending them fleeing into the woods. The Englishmen explored the area seeking a place to build their settlement, and eventually decided on a peninsula that they believed would be easily defended. There, they opened a sealed box which contained the names of the colonial council, appointed by the king himself. The council members would elect a president for the colony. Among the names was John Smith, but being that he was still under arrest, he was not allowed to vote for the president. Edward Wingfield was elected, and the men set out to construct their settlement. They began building a fort in the shape of a triangle, a crescent at each point where they could place cannons. Smith was finally released from the brig, and while the others set about constructing the settlement, Smith accompanied Captain Newport, Archer, Percy, and others to explore the river and attempt to make contact with natives. Most of the natives they encountered were friendly, including Chief Powhatan. At least, they thought they were meeting Powhatan. But in fact, the crafty old Indian king had sent his son to pretend to be him. The English exchanged gifts with Powhatan's son, and the pretend chief presented a fine feast, welcoming them to his country. 
the Powhatan Pretender greatly enjoyed the English beer, liquor, and wine. In fact, he may have enjoyed it too much, excusing himself from visiting the next day as the hot drinks had made him sick. While Smith, Newport, and the others were making peace and establishing trade with the natives up the river, a band of Indian braves, some 200 strong, crept through the tall grasses toward the Englishmen constructing the fort at the settlement they had named Jamestown. The army of braves was made up of an alliance of various tribes, likely sent by Powhatan himself to test the strength of these strangers from across the ocean. After all, Powhatan's tribe was organized for war, and it's probable he would want to see if the English were too. The native warriors slipped right up to the English camp and loosed a hail of arrows into the settlers' tents. The English settlers reacted quickly, firing their muskets at the invaders, but they were badly outnumbered, and the Indians threatened to overwhelm them. President Wingfield formed his men up to return fire with muskets, but the Indians were attacking them from every direction. An arrow flew through Wingfield's beard, a boy was killed, and several of the men, including four members of the council, were injured. With the fort incomplete, the English feared they would be overrun by the painted warriors who assaulted them. They quickly fled to their boats and put out into the river, swiftly paddling for the safety of the ships. The sailors aboard heard the men's shouts and began to fire the ship's cannon at the enemy. This fire from the heavy guns and a mistaken belief that the white men could not be killed scared the Indians away and they retreated back into the forest from whence they had come. The next day, Smith, Newport, and the others returned to the settlement with some of their new native friends including the pretend Powhatan. The foe chief assured the Englishmen that the warriors who had attacked them were not from his nation. He then suggested that the settlers cut down the high grasses near the camp to prevent men from sneaking up on them. Smith was disappointed with the defense Wingfield had led, and he made his displeasure well known. The fort was completed in mid-June, and feeling confident that the settlers could defend themselves without having to retreat to the ships, Captain Newport made plans to return to England for fresh supplies. On June 21, 1607, the men all took communion together and ate a farewell supper aboard ship. The next day, Newport sailed for England. As Newport sailors needed food for the return voyage, Newport left the colony with only 15 weeks' worth of supplies, despite the fact that it would be 20 weeks before he would be able to return. There were 104 men left behind at Jamestown, and besides the inadequate rations, they would face many more hardships. There were several native chiefs who were hostile to the English and wanted to push them from the land, never to return. The nearby swamps bred mosquitoes and created all sorts of unhealthy conditions. The only water supply for drinking, cooking, and bathing was the James River, but when the tide came in, it left the water salty. Even when the tide went out again, the water remained foul and slimy. By September, at least 41 men had died. As yet, wrote Smith, we had no houses to cover us. Our tents were rotten and our cabins worse than not. The settlement was so full of sickness and disease that at any given time, only five to ten men were well enough to work. Nevertheless, even the sick had to take their turn on watch. Despite the sickness, 
the number one killer of the settlement was starvation. The men were able to eat some oysters, fish, and squirrels, but no large game was found. The supplies that remained contained as many worms as grains. As is often the case, when things go horribly wrong, the leadership was blamed. The men accused Wingfield and his friends of hoarding food and supplies, and on September 10th, the council elected John Ratcliffe president of the settlement. Thankfully, some of Powhatan's tribe, including the chief's young daughter, Pocahontas, brought corn and meat to trade with the settlers. The condition of the men so improved from the food that 30 were able to work and provisions for three weeks' bread were put away. Smith began to trade with the Indians more regularly to help keep his settlement alive. President Ratcliffe turned out to be an abusive leader. Once, while Smith was away trading with the Indians, Ratcliffe convicted Captain Kendall of attempted mutiny on his own accord and had him shot. Former President Wingfield believed he would be next and organized a group of men and sailors to take one of the two remaining ships back to England. Smith returned just before they left. He threatened to shoot anyone who attempted to leave. They were not the only ones that wanted to abandon the starving colony. Even President Ratcliffe was making plans to flee Virginia. However, Smith was determined to make the colony stick and once again put an end to those plans. It was becoming clear by this time that even though Ratcliffe was president, Smith was really the leader of the colony. Smith would put them into work building houses or cutting grasses with each having a specific job. He always kept the most difficult jobs for himself and did not build his own house until all of the other men had one. As the weather grew colder and colder, it became more difficult to find food. The other settlers convinced Smith to take the barge upriver to try a trade with the Indians. Smith and nine other men set out in the barge, but eventually found the river too narrow to pass through. Leaving seven men aboard the barge with orders not to go ashore, Smith and two others named Robinson and Emery, left the barge to hike to an Indian village. There, they hired a canoe and two Indian guides to take them further. Smith had not been gone long when the crew of the barge disobeyed his orders and went ashore. A young laborer named George Casson, who had come to the colony with his brothers, wandered through the brush looking for food. He was suddenly ambushed by a group of Indians and quickly fled. Casson shouted a warning to his compatriots as he ran, but was unable to escape. The rest of the crew managed to get back on board the barge and sailed away from the hostile natives, leaving Casson behind. Casson was understandably terrified. His captors asked him where the others had gone. Specifically, they wanted the leader of the party, the captain. Casson told them that Smith and two other Englishmen had gone upriver. The Indians killed Casson and set off to find Smith and his men. Smith, his men, and the two Indian guides stopped for the night about 12 miles north of the barge. While Robinson, Emery, and one of the Indians went to sleep on the shore of the river, Smith had the other Indian lead him into the forest to explore the area. Smith had been gone about half an hour when he suddenly heard a terrifying Indian battle cry. Realizing that he was about to be attacked and believing his guide had betrayed him, he quickly grabbed the Indian guide and drew his pistol as hundreds of native warriors erupted from the forest, arrows notched and bows drawn. Using his guide as a human shield, 
Smith fled the attackers as arrows began to whiz by him. One pierced his thigh, and Smith gritted his teeth against the pain before raising his pistol and firing. His aim was true, and he killed the warrior nearest him. More arrows rained down, many becoming hung in Smith's clothes, but no more pierced his skin. Smith sought cover and was able to reload his pistol. He fired again and reloaded. He was able to get off three or four more shots before he realized he was surrounded by hundreds of warriors aiming arrows at him, his back to the boggy quagmire. The Indians instructed him to hand over his pistol. He refused, demanding instead that he be returned to his men by the canoe. The Indians informed him that his men were dead. Smith knew that his chances of escaping through the quagmire were slim. He decided to once again trust in Providence and surrendered to the Indians. They took Smith to their chief, and the chief had him tied to a tree to be executed. At the last moment, Smith saved himself by producing his compass. The Indian chief was amazed by the compass and the moon, sun, and stars which circled it. But most of all, he was astonished at the magic invisible barrier, which we call glass, that prevented his finger from touching it. Smith tried to explain the use of the compass and the roundness of the earth. The Indians marveled. The chief ordered his men to untie Smith from the tree. Smith asked to be taken back to see his men. The Indians obliged, and he found Robinson dead on the shore, twenty or thirty arrows shot into him. Emery was nowhere to be found. The Indians then took Smith to their village. There, he was fed a good meal of venison and cornbread, and was given lodging under a guard of eight men. Smith was with them for some time, and the chief liked to sit and talk to him, especially about the English ships, sailing on the seas, the earth, the sky, and the Christian God. The chief was clearly frustrated by the settlers at Jamestown, and continually threatened to attack and kill them. Still, he and his people treated Smith well, certainly better than how the Turks had treated him. Smith warned the chief that if Captain Newport, whom Smith referred to as his father, to explain the importance to the chief, returned and believed Smith killed by Indians, the great ships would rain fire down on his village. Thus, the chief agreed to have a messenger take a letter from Smith to the fort, informing the colonists that he was alive and being well cared for. The chief wanted to show off his captive and took him around to the other villages, displaying him much like a carnival freak. At each village, the Indians marveled at his compass and the discharging of his pistol. Eventually, Smith was taken to Powhatan's village. When Smith was brought before him, the Indian king was sitting on a stack of ten or twelve mats. A necklace of giant pearls was around his neck, with a great cape of raccoon skins, their tails sticking out like tassels. A semicircle of young women sat before him, white beads draped over their shoulders, and their faces painted red. A group of warriors stood behind the king. Smith must have been confused when he was brought before the Indian king. This was the real Powhatan, not his son. Powhatan scowled menacingly at the English soldier, as it was explained to Smith that he was to be punished for the two native warriors that he had shot and killed. When asked what the punishment would be, he was told death. A large stone was brought out and set before Powhatan. Suddenly, Smith was snatched from behind and dragged over to the large rock. He was then tied down with rope, his head tight against the rock so that it could not possibly move. 
Smith watched as a young warrior brought out a giant club and handed it to Powhatan. The Indian king rose from his throne of mats and strode over to Smith, ready to smash Smith's skull in. As he readied for the blow, Smith squeezed his eyes tight, praying to God to deliver him from death once again, or to take his soul to heaven. Thank you for listening to Home of the Brave, Book One, The Republic. For notes and citations, or to support this podcast, please purchase the ebook available at ChristopherVale.net and Amazon.com. <laughs>